0: you're listening to sermon audio from gospelite baptist church for more resources or to donate to this ministry please visit gospelite.org first peter chapter one is where we're at as we turn our attention to god's word i want to turn your attention quickly to an analogy i'm going to build this analogy by giving you some illustrations are you ready and then we'll jump into the wake-up call. All right, the wake-up call for this morning. Many of you have heard the story of the Titanic. April fourteenth, nineteen ninety-two. Started off a beautiful day, a sunny day, but quickly the weather changed. Within about three or four hours, it went from forty-three degrees Fahrenheit to below freeze uh, to, uh, to, to freezing to thirty-one, thirty degrees Fahrenheit. And all of a sudden, there began to be a problem and warnings began to come across the gauges on that ship. But as the story goes, they failed to heed the warnings of the thermometer gauge and the captain kept the ship going straight forward at a high speed. And you know the rest of the story, just to end it quickly, they hit a a glacier, 1,500 people were killed, all because somebody took their focus, took their eyes, took their attention off of a gauge. More recently, my wife and I, when we celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary, we went to Paris. It was really fun. It was one of those lifetime trips. And we stumbled across a landmark where Princess Di had passed away. So we read the story of Princess Diana, who was in a car with her boyfriend, I guess at the time, Dodie if I'm not mistaken, a I or something, and she, and there was another person driving the car at 120 miles an hour. The car was crashed. All three of them died because obviously somebody wasn't paying attention to the gauges. If that's true on the sea, and if it's true on the land, then how much more true is it in the air? I can relate to that a lot more because I fly uh, probably a little bit more than the, than the average person. Not as much as I used to, but I do fly. And I know this. I want a pilot who understands the gauges. I want a pilot. I'm not so much concerned that he's sincere. That's nice. I'm not so much concerned that he's a nice guy. I don't really care that he means well or that he tries hard. I, just, I want a pilot that knows about the gauges. And how to fly the plane? So I called Mike Coop a couple weeks ago. Mike's a pilot. Mike's a missionary here at Gospel Light. He's an aviation missionary, and he flies to different. In fact, he's flying this week to the Bahamas, bringing disaster relief, uh, making dozens of flights back and forth. I said, Mike. I said, uh, I could have called Doug. Doug is going to. I'm going to see if I pass the test. Doug, I'm going to let you be my my judge. Not the sermon judge, just the aviation judge. All right. All right. So I called Mike, I said, Mike, I want to I use a comparison, if you will. I, I'm thinking about these imperatives that I'm reading about in 1 Peter. You're going to see them in just a moment. Many of them were mentioned in our worship songs this morning as we think about this message. But, but I, I said, Mike, are there some things that you would consider to be gauges that are imperative that the pilot know where these particular gauges are on the plane? And could we... Could we compare those uh, so that I could possibly compare those to the imperatives of the Christian life? He said, well, let me, let me name a few. And he started off by naming a few different things that are needed to fly appropriately and fly without crashing on a plane. And I'm going to relate those to you in the next few moments about how to fly in the Christian life and not crash. And I believe that for Peter here, the preacher, is giving us some incredible truth today. These are things that are non-negotiable in the Christian life. These are imperatives of the Christian life that if we, I love the song, Love Has a Name, let us fix our eyes. These are things we must fix our eyes on. We must be fully engaged in these things in order for us to fly the Christian life correctly. So, number one, are you ready? Here we go. Let's jump in. Let's have a little fun this morning, but also I think there'll be some very serious truth. Number one, a pilot has to keep his eyes on the fuel gauge. The fuel gauge, how important is it that we know how much fuel there is? You know, when we flew with Mike, when I flew with Mike, and I did many, many times across the the country, uh, I think the farthest we ever went was Gatlinburg from from Hot Springs. He had to fly out to Gatlinburg, bring me back for a funeral during Teen Revolution. But we flew a lot. He took me a lot of different places. I'd go preaching. If I was within a state, Mike would fly me there. And oftentimes Mike would say, look, preacher, this particular flight, we're going to have to probably land halfway there to refuel because it was that important that we know how much fuel we have if we're going to be able to make it to the destination. And so I believe that in first Peter, the fuel of the Christian life is hope. It's hope. I want you to see it this morning in our text in first Peter chapter one in verse number 13, pay close attention here as we examine this scripture and actually we're going to break it down together. It's awesome. Look at it, verse 13. He starts off by saying, therefore, therefore. Now, whenever you see the word therefore, you've got to ask, what's it's, what it's, what therefore? <laughs> and what Peter is speaking about is what we preached two weeks ago about. The first 12 verses of 1 Peter chapter 1 are about what? Our great salvation. Thank you. Good, good answer. Our great salvation. He says, therefore, in other words, pay attention in light of what we just talked about. And what we just talked about was our great salvation. What my dear brother Weatherford just experienced in being baptized was a public testimony of his great salvation. And can you see how it's changed his life? Can you see the the energy and the excitement as we read his testimony of how God is transforming him into the likeness of Jesus already? He's growing. He wants to grow even more. He's excited about what God did. As a result of his great salvation. Therefore, he says, listen up. In light of the fact that you've been saved, preparing your minds for action. Now that statement is interesting. In the old King James, in fact, I'm reading out of the ESV, but it has underneath in a little note, it says, in the Greek, it means girding up the loins of your mind. And I believe the King James actually says, gird up the loins of your mind. But yet in the ESV, it says, which is very good, it says, preparing your minds for action. So let's talk about girding up the loins of your mind. Girding up what? Girding up. That's kind of strange. Well, back in the day, in Bible days, and even now today in the Middle Eastern countries, you wear these longer type robes. And men and women alike would wear these outfits that would go maybe even down almost to the ground. But when a man had to get somewhere fast and men you know what I'm talking about when you've got to get somewhere quickly. Last night, I was kind of trying to get my wife to the hospital fast and, and so things were a little shaky and what they would have done in those times, they would have pulled up their loins and girded them in their belt so they could move better. It was so restrictive if, if if they were hanging down, but when they needed to move faster, when they needed When action was involved, they would gird up the law. Peter knew that in the culture that he was writing this, they would understand that language. So as I explain that to you today, we get it. He says, I want you to prepare your minds for action. Then he goes on and says, I want you to be sober-minded. What does it mean to be sober-minded? Well, to be sober means to be not what? Not drunk. And so when someone is not drunk, means they're sober. Why do people abuse substance? They abuse substance to dull the pain. They're trying to get rid of the pain, and so they turn to substance abuse. And, and, and yet God gave us pain so we could know that there is a problem, and we need to fix the problem. And so the, an absence of sobriety is actually an absence of the capacity to deal with something properly like it needs to be dealt with. And so he says, I want you to be sober-minded regarding this. Think about how much Peter is building up to what he is about to say. He says, listen, I want you in light of the fact that you're saved. I want you to get your mind fixed and focused, prepare it for action. I want you to be sober minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought. uh, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully. Let's talk about that for just a minute. What is hope? Hope is the confident expectation that something is going to get better tomorrow. It's going to get better. Hope. Hope is the confident expectation of something better tomorrow. Let's put that on the screen so you can see it. And as I think to my future, I think of of what is my future going to be? Listen, my future diagram for delight, my plan for prosperity, my hope for happiness is not in anything else but the Lord. So set your hope fully on the Lord. What are you focused on? What am I focused on this morning? There's a lot of other things to be focused on. But this morning, above all things, I'm focused on the Lord. He is where my hope lies. And I think there's some things that I'm finding today that many Christians are not focused on that. They're putting their hope in other things. I'm going to give you five things that I have found that Christians put their hope in that won't last. The first thing is this is my hope in my situ- is my hope in my health my beauty my fitness or just the physical am i more concerned about how i look Man, if I can just, you know, work out three, four times a week, and if I can just have, you know, a good body and, and look good and and, and and be fit and physically fit, and if my health is good, then I'll be happy. If, if I look good, then I'll be happy. If I have the outward appearances right, man, that's really where it's at. I just feel so much better about myself when I'm all together on the outside. We can't put our hope in that. Man, health is a wonderful thing, and I'm all for physical fitness. And I believe it's pleasing to God to keep our bodies fit and our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So all of that, yes, 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 it is important, but wait, is your hope there? Because if your hope is there, you're going to be disappointed. All of your confidence needs to be in the Lord, not in these things. Man, I'm sure I'm glad today my hope is not in my wife's physical health. I'm glad it's not in the fact that she's on the front row like she always is. No, she's at home today. Her, her health is, is failing uh, today. She's not doing well today. But you know what? I, I, my hope is in the Lord. God's in control. How does a guy get up here and preach when maybe he's been through what he's been through last night? The same way that Jasmine's in church today. The same way that you're in church today. All of us have pain. All of us have hurts. All of us have someone we know that's suffering. But our hope is not in our physical being. Our hope is in the Lord. Number two, is your hope in your situation, your setup, your finances, your house, your car? Man, if I could just have that house. Man, if I could just have that... that. That 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 car, if I could just have a good 401k, if I just knew everything would be okay for the rest of my life financially, I'm set, I'm fit, I've got it. I'm just going to keep working until all that's perfectly set because you know what? I got to make sure this is all in order because this is, I'll, I'll just be relieved. You know, what a stress reliever. I'll be so much happier if all of these things are in order. If I could just be set up for life, whew, then I'll be okay. You know, the harder we try to set up contentment for ourselves, the less we have it. It's amazing. It doesn't seem like we ever really are content when that's what we're focused on. When we're focused on making sure that our setup is good, then we tend to seem to never really feel good about our setup. Don't put your hope in your finances, your setup, your situation, your house. Hey, is your hope in your church? You know, my church, I I love my church. I've been here 27 years. I love this church. I love this church. I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for the people of this church. I'm grateful for the friends I've made in this church, the fellowship of this church. I'm thankful for all of that, but I want you to know my hope is not in my church because there's no perfect churches. And I have found that people that are looking for their hope in their church, the perfect church, the right church, where I can dot all the I's, cross all the T's, check all the boxes off. Yeah, this is the exact one. And this... If you are looking for the perfect church and putting your hope in that, you're going to look for a long time for that church. You can't find your hope in that. Why do you think I've stayed here for 27 years? One reason, my hope is not here. It's easy to stay at a place that your hope is not in. Because I know that this is, not, this is not supposed to be a perfect place with perfect people. But I do serve a perfect God who's going to take us all one day that are saved to a perfect place to live forever. Wow, my hope is in the Lord not in my church my friends my fellowship number number 4 i find that some put their hope in their family their marriage their children as parents and i think it's so unfair to put that kind of pressure on our families that everything just has to be right. That that that, that we have to be the perfect parents. Or our marriage has to be just right. Our spouse has to just meet all of our needs. And as long as our spouse meets our needs, as long as our kids are okay, and as long as my marriage is right, as, as long as all of that is said, as long as I'm the perfect parent and nobody knows the truth. Hey, that's not possible. Don't put your hope in something that's going to fail at times. Are you with me? Your hope needs to be in the Lord We need to be dedicated to these things. Yes, I'm dedicated to my family. Yes, I'm dedicated to my marriage. Yes, I'm dedicated to my children. And yes, I want to be a good parent. But I don't put my hope there. My hope is in the Lord, fully in the Lord. And then the one that I think could be the most damaging is when we put our hope in our abilities, our talents, our efforts, because all of those things will disappoint you at some point. All of them will. I've been... You know, I, you know, the giftedness that God has given me at times has, has failed me. And, and, and I have pride has set in at times and it, it, it damages my ability to really effectively serve the Lord. When I think it's, you know, it's me and it's my abilities and my talent and, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good whatever it is that I'm supposed to be good at. And they clapped and they like me and that's what I'm after. No, no, no. That's not what my hope is in. My hope is in the Lord. Get your eyes on the fuel gauge. This is what gives us, this is what keeps us in the air and not crashing is when our eyes are fixed on the one whose name is Jesus. Love has a name. Joy has a name. Hope has a name. His name is Jesus. Get your eyes on him. Everything else is secondary. Everything, including your wife, kids, money, finances, house, car, everything else comes after the Lord. Set your hope fully on the Lord, not on your physical health because the outward man perishes, but the inward man is renewed day by day. Don't put your hope in your stuff because a life's a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Don't put your, your, your hope fully in your church because there is no perfect church. Don't put your hope fully in your family and your kids because there are no perfect family and kids. And don't put your hope in your abilities because you will Fail. My hope is in the Lord. It's the fuel for my Christian living. John Denver was an old, I guess, I don't, I remember him singing. Like I remember one song, sunshine. How's it go? On my shoulders makes me happy. I remember that. Is there another one? Anybody got another one? John Denver? Yeah. Yeah. Country roads take me home to the place I belong, West Virginia. Am I doing good? Okay, every young person thinks I'm an idiot, but everybody 50 and over thinks I'm the coolest thing ever. Okay, I like being cool with 50 and over sometimes, especially Tony Thomas is 55 today. You know what I like about Tony being 55 is I'm 54. That's what I like about that. On October 12, 1997, singer-songwriter and actor, John Denver, was killed when he crashed... The long, easy aircraft he was piloting after it ran out of fuel just off the coast in Pacific Grove, California. Denver, who was the sole occupant of the aircraft, apparently lost control of the aircraft while attempting to manipulate the fuel selector handle. The NTSB cited Denver's failure to have the aircraft refueled and paying attention to the fuel gauge as the main cause for the accident. You know, I think if we take our eyes off the Lord, we're going to crash. I don't know what you got your eyes on today, but the fuel of the Christian life what keeps you going is putting your hope fully in the Lord. Number two, every pilot is a gauge. Am I, am I saying this right, Doug? The altimeter. I got it? Good. I didn't know in the first service. I think I am pronouncing it right, and Doug said I am. The altimeter. Now, here's what... Here's what Mike said it is. It tells the pilot how high the plane is above sea level. Sounds pretty important to me. Has something to do with the altitude. In other words, the altimeter, if you ignore the altimeter, you will inevitably crash. Because you need to know how how high you are off the ground. And you need to know how close you are to outer space. (laughs) In other words, there's a couple of ways you can crash. You can crash into the ground, but I don't think it'd be real good to go too far out of space either. So there is a place that I need to be if I'm a pilot and I need to find that that altitude that I need to fly in. the altimeter will give me that altitude so that I can stay in that altitude, a parameter between earth and heaven, if you will, between earth and the sky. There's a altitude that I need to fly. And if I'm not paying attention to that gauge, I could crash. And the altimeter of the Christian life in this passage is holiness. I want you to see it. God has established parameters for the Christian life. And we see those parameters spelled out in verse 14, verse 15, and verse 16 of our text as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of... Of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Can I tell you, this is not the focus of very many pulpits today in America? Our country is spiraling downward. And oftentimes we find it has to do with holiness, holiness in the church, holiness in our Christian lives. And so many Christians are crashing and burning in their lives because we have avoided this subject of holiness. And I think it's a very important thing to talk about in the church. It is the gauge of the Christian life that helps us to fly right in between heaven and in between earth, holiness means to be set apart. Holiness means to be different. Not weird, not obnoxious, but different. You know, I don't want to be so heavenly minded. I'm no earthly good, but I don't want to be so earthly minded that i you can't even tell I'm a Christian. There's got to be a way that you and I can fly within the parameters that God has established in his word. And God is very clear about that. And that's where I want to fly my life, in between those parameters. And it's a constant struggle, and there's tension all the time, especially when you're raising children. And as a pastor, I'm constantly hit with questions about this because it seems as if we're going, we're swinging the pendulum so far in a direction that we're actually, if we're not careful, we're, we're spending so little time talking about the importance of living a holy life that this gets away from us really quick. And I experience a lot of counseling To young people and even today, men in their, I sat down with a guy yesterday and we talked about how that just because we're married for 30 years doesn't mean we couldn't commit adultery tomorrow. Guys are doing it all over the place. We're just dropping our guard. We're letting our guard down and we're crashing and burning our Christian lives because we're not flying at an altitude between heaven and earth where we're living holy lives. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. And I think that's what Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 is speaking about. It gets real quiet when you speak on holiness, by the way, but that's okay. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't let the world, I'm sorry, I said that before I said the verse, squeeze you into its mold. Don't accept the pressure to be like the world. I tell my kids this all the time. Be different. Be different. My kid told me the other day, he said, yeah, dad. He said, pretty much it's this. You text a girl and then you maybe you take her on a date and then you have sex with her. I said, dad, that's it, dad. That's how it works today. Pretty much that's common. I mean, like I'm a freaky. I'm a freak person. I mean, people look at me like I'm a nutcase. You mean, I mean, you don't, you know, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't let the world squeeze you. If that's the way it is, text, date, and sex, don't go that route, kids. Don't go that route. That's reserved for marriage. That's reserved for one woman for one lifetime. You say, that is a crazy, you're living in 2019, Eric. You're a whack job. I'm actually a Bible believer. That's what I am. And and, and I'm going to preach the truth. And I know that may, 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 may not be popular these days, but I almost feel like even preachers are intimidated to preach the truth, including this one. Even saying that, I feel the pushback. I feel the pushback. I feel the the sense of don't hurt feelings. And I'm not hurting feelings. I'm simply saying holiness is what God is. And holiness is what he's calling us to. And we've got to address that. Because when Jesus came into my life, it changed my conduct. It changed my conduct, my behavior, my actions, my priorities, my pastimes, my passions, my practices. I'm not perfect, but my desire is to be becoming perfect. I want to become more like Jesus. I'm not there yet. I fail. I fall. I get up, but I'm getting up and moving towards Christ. That's what holiness is. It's not perfection, but it's striving every day to become more like Christ, becoming more like Jesus. In verse 14, he puts it like this. Do not be controlled. Don't be controlled by this world. You know, I used to think that the Christian life was so strict, you know, and it was. We were legalistic and we were strict. And you could look at our rule book and think, man, boy, that's a strict school or that's a strict youth group. But I've come to realize that the parameters that God has set for me is, is good. In other words... Every time God says, don't, what he really means is this. Don't hurt yourself. Don't hurt yourself because holiness and happiness run together. They're one and the same. For some reason, we think that holiness means you don't have any fun, but it's not true. Holiness and happiness run together. They are product of each other. Is God happy? Yes or no. Yes, Psalm 1611 tells us a little bit about God's happiness. It says this, you make known to me the path of joy in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand. When I'm right next to you, when I'm closest to you, when I'm close, when my desire is to be near the Holy One, which means I want to be in your presence. And when you enter his presence, you enter in a reverent, holy way, right? So when I'm closest to you, God, man, I'm happy. You see, to be holy is to be happy. My coop took me up one time into the plane, and the, this was the first time he ever took me up. And he was showing me all these phenometers, and, I mean, the, the, the gauges, rather, and all these different things. And he was just making sure that—he also showed me the little ear, you know, the little thing, Doug, you put on your head. Because you can't hear in those Cessnas. You can't hear anything if you don't wear the— The headphones, you know, but you can talk on the headphones. You can hear each other talk. It's really cool. So he's going through all this stuff. And then finally he says, and that's the puke bag. And he points at this. And I mean, literally every Cessna has a puke bag. And I said, oh, I probably won't need that. He said, well, you never know. I said, okay. So we're up in the plane and he asked me a question. Now I want to tell you, if you ever fly on a small plane and they ask you this question, don't say yes, like I did. Because Mike asked me this question. Doug, he said this. He says, I looked at something, we were in flying over Hot Springs, Garland County, and I looked at something, and I said, man, that is so cool. I, I, this is a great view of that. And then he said, would you like a closer look? Now, when they say that, don't say yes, because that's why they showed you where the puke bag was. So he said, would you like a closer look? And I said, sure. And I mean, when I said sure, the altitude dropped in that plane. I I thought we were going to crash. He's like cool with it. He's like, but he's like, and it seemed within seconds we had just dropped. I don't know how many feet to get closer to what I said I wanted to see, which I no longer wanted to see. It didn't matter anymore because I was puking my guts out in the puke bag. Now that's a little humor followed up by a pretty serious exhortation. And that is this. How much of the pain in our life comes from a sudden change in holiness? How much of the pain in our lives comes from a sudden change in our holiness? When we decide to get in the flesh, guys, when we decide to get in the flesh and do things that are contrary to God's word, things that are not like Jesus, and things change. The altitude changes. And sometimes we find ourselves in dangerous territory. Listen, fly right. Fly right, guys. Fly right, ladies, or you're going to crash. And the call is to holiness. The third instrument that Mike talked about was this. I love, this is actually my favorite name for the instrument. I thought he made a mistake, Doug, when he said it. He said it's the attitude display indicator. Is that, you know that? Okay. I thought when he said attitude, I honestly thought, oh, you mean altitude? He said, no, attitude. So there is an instrument on a plane called the attitude display indicator. He said, yeah, it's called the ADI. And I said, what is the ADI? And here was his answer. It shows the plane's position relative to the horizon. In other words, it. it he went on to explain that it shows... The wings level, the, whether the nose of the plane is up or down, because it's very important that the nose of the plane is that you know where that's at, because that's very important, to whether or not that plane is going to fly right or whether you may crash, because sometimes you don't know what the wing level is, and sometimes you just cannot know. Even though you're flying, sometimes weather perm- could, could become a problem. Clouds could become an issue of not exactly knowing what, you know, what's happening around you. But if you have the attitude display indicator right, Well, that seems like something important you need to know. And yet sometimes you can't tell. So you've got to keep your eyes on the attitude display indicator. So what is the attitude display indicator of the Christian life? Well, I believe Peter reveals that the attitude, the attitude essential to flying right in the Christian life is fear. As shocking as that is to us this morning, I want you to listen to our text. Look at verse 17. Because I know sometimes again I I don't think this is something we often talk much about and yet scripture does. Let's begin by just breaking this down for a moment. And you know, we're actually probably 70% done with the message. So as we conclude the message, pay close attention to this particular gauge of the Christian life. And if you call on him as father, first of all, that's a great place for me to take a time out and simply say this, is he your father? Are you his child? Because not everybody is a child of God. Now I've talked to some people that say everybody's a child of God. We're all children of God. And yet John chapter one, verse 12 says this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become a child of God. So there is something that you have to do to become a child of God. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave that person the right to be a child of God. Not everyone's a child of God. You must believe on his name. And when you believe on his name, you become a child of God. Not everybody is a child of God. Therefore, not everybody calls him father. But if you call him father, it says, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. God is not a respecter of person. In other words, God does not play favorites. God is all about justice. God is all about equality. God is all about fairness. In fact, the word of God has much to say about this. Acts chapter 10 and verse number 34 says, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Aren't you glad God shows no partiality? God's not about the color of your skin, your socioeconomic status. He's not about where you go to church or where you live or where how much money you make. He's not about that. He shows no partiality. I love Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 9 where it again it says, knowing that he was both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality without him. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, and there is no partiality. God plays no favorites. Now we come to the part of the verse. I want you to see the, the gauge, the, the attitude. Are you ready? Conduct yourselves with fear. And how long should I do it throughout the time of your exile? What is our exile? We found out in verse one or verse two of first Peter chapter one. Our exile is, is the fact that we are really exiled from this world. When we become a Christian, we are not of this world anymore. We are a part of heaven is our home, right? This world is not our home. So as long as I'm in this world, I need to conduct myself with fear. Fear is I want to be in a right relationship with God. Fear is I will do not what my flesh wants me to do, but I want to do what God is asking me to do. That's why the thief on the cross said, don't you even fear the Lord? What's wrong with you, man? Don't you have any fear of God? How can you talk like that? So many people, it seems, don't have the fear of the Lord. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, the fear, or rather Psalm 19 verse 9 says, the fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. The rules of the Lord are true. They're righteous altogether. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs says, is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 19, 23 goes on to say that the fear of the Lord leads to life. And whoever whoever has this, rest satisfied. Psalm 34 verse 9 says, oh, fear the Lord, all ye his saints. Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of Life And I love Proverbs 129. Choose the fear of the Lord. Choose it. Conduct yourselves with fear. Make that choice. How long? For my whole life. Keep your eyes on the ADI, the attitude display indicator. Look at the rest of the text here. Look at what attitude is being displayed as we read verses 18 through 21. Goes on to say, knowing that you were transformed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. You know I'm thinking about when I was raised? You know what I was raised to believe? A feudal way, that you're saved by works, you're saved by baptism. Are you saved by works? Are you saved by baptism? No, but that's what I was taught. I'm glad today my father doesn't believe that anymore. Amen. My father believes you're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Amen. But I was not taught that growing up. And he says here, remember this, that... You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with, we sang it this morning, the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through Christ, through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. I always have to have this, a healthy fear of the Lord. Now, let me tell you where I'm at today at age 54, been born again for 31 years. You may ask, well, are you really afraid of God? Well, today, not so much. And here's why. 1 John 4, 17 says it like this. And as we live in God, our hope grows more perfect. The foundation of my Christian life was fear. In other words, I want you to know, when I came to Christ, there was a healthy fear of what might happen if I didn't. I remember there were things that I would read in the scriptures and understand, man, there's consequences to that. Even to this day, part of what keeps me grounded is I have a healthy fear of the consequences of what happens when you disobey God. That's a good thing. When I was raising my children, I can assure you, and I'm still raising two in my home, but there was a good, healthy fear of pops. I mean, they weren't afraid I would hurt them, but they were afraid they'd get in trouble. Maybe get the keys taken away. Maybe have to go to their room. I mean, you know, mom would say, and she would discipline the children, wait till dad gets home. And my kids didn't say, oh, I can't wait. This is gonna be awesome. They were like, oh no. You see the foundation of My children's raising was to build a healthy fear in their lives of doing wrong and the consequences. But you know what's happened as they've grown older? Our love grows more perfect. The foundation is fear, but then perfect love casts out fear. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. You see, as we grow in a love relationship with Christ we begin to realize that we're not serving him out of fear anymore. We're serving him because we love him. But it was the foundation of fear that got us to that place. And I think this is so important because today we seem to have people running amok as if there is no fear, no fear at all. Doing whatever they want to do without fear of any consequences and even sometimes doing it in the name of, I love God as much as anybody. You see, we're not truly able to understand God's love without having a healthy understanding of fear. And he says, look, conduct yourselves with fear. And so the foundation of the Christian life is fear. And as I grow in my love relationship with Christ, my attitude, yes, changes. And I I, I live my life not because it's, I don't obey God because it's strict, to be honest with you. I think one of the easiest things to do as I grow in Christ is to live the Christian life. Man, I watch what, Mistakes people have made. I think. Whoa, I don't think I want to do that. I think, I think you know, living the Christian life according to the Word of God is much more blessed and happy than the other. Then there's a fourth gauge. It's called the airspeed indicator. Is that it, Doug? The ASI, right? The ASI is this. It is the it is the speedometer of the plane. So very important. You want that plane to take off. You gotta you gotta make sure you get enough speed. By the way. When you're taking off, you want the plane to go fast, right? I want that plane to go really fast. So what is the airspeed indicator of the Christian life? Let's close with this. It's love. It's love. Look at verse 22. It says here, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love. Love. Is what accelerates the Christian life. Love is what pushes our faith more than anything else. Because here's the thing we're not just to love one another, we're to love one another earnestly. How do you love somebody earnestly? Well, you know what, Darian? I know you lift weights. Yeah, I'm going to tell you something about lifting weights. I don't know much about it, not as much as you. But i tell you one thing I do know. When, I, when a guy's lifting some heavy weights, he makes funny noises. Oh, man, it gets intense. I got a little gym I was in the other day, and this dude was lifting weight off his chest, and he, it, I mean, he, it was so loud, I kind of went, whoa. It was like, whoa. And I'm like, whoa, you okay? I'm good, man, I'm good. It was a lot of weight, I had to get it up, you know, and it's just my, it just it seems to help me get it up better when I can just, ugh. So I was thinking about that, and that worked earnestly. Man, that's a different kind of love. That's another level of Vince. And I love you with some earnest love. I mean like <clears throat> I mean like Vince, it's like a chest bump love, you know. <clears throat> I mean it's it's not just, you know, I love you. It's Vince. If you need me. It's the kind of love that one of our church members said to me on the way out. He said, "Why didn't you call me last night?" "Why didn't you call me last night, preacher?" What do you mean? Did you drive her all the way up to the hospital every 30 by yourself? I said, well, yeah. He said, man, I wish you'd have called me. I would have drove you. And I know all of you would have done that. But when he said that to me, I thought, that's earnest love. That's earnest love. That's the kind of love we need for one another. An earnest love. And not just love, but an earnest love a kind of love. What does Jesus say in his word? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If you have what? love one for another let's set the bar high this is the greatest compliment that anyone can give our church it's not wow what great bible teaching man your worship set was off the charts i really think your church is great man i love your children's ministries those are wonderful let me tell you something i'd much rather somebody compliment our church by saying i'll tell you one thing about that church Their children's ministries are okay. I mean, they don't get the newest buildings in town, but they're decent. You know, the worship sets, okay. A couple of people were off tune this morning, but I mean, really, it was okay. It do, you know. And actually, their facilities, they're okay. A little bit old. I was freezing in church this morning. But I'll tell you one thing. Those people love each other. It's amazing. There's a lot of love there. Who cares if we have the best facilities if we've got love? Who cares whether or not we, we? and I do care about those things. And We're trying to get the best facilities. That's what the Capitol campaign is all about. I love the atrium. I'm going to love this auditorium when we have nice padded seats. But can I tell you something? We shouldn't like the padded seats more than we like the people that sit in them. And I think sometimes we get so caught up in church becoming self-serving. I want the nice chairs, the nice music, the nice nursery. I want it to be the nice parking lot, the nice bathrooms. What about the nice people? What makes the church? Is it the buildings, the pews the, the, is it all the amenities? They're nice. I like them and I want them to be nicer. I love this screen. it's great, but can I tell you something? please don't think this church is great because it has a nice screen. That's not that's not what we're after. I want our churches comp, to be complimented more for our technology less for our technology and more for our love, our love for one another. Look how that church loves one another. How do they love one another earnestly? And then finally from a pure heart it says, not just those that are easy to love, not this not just those I receive love from, not just the ones I like I like the most but but I love everyone. doesn't matter who they are. I love them. And when we cease to do this, I think the Christian life comes crashing down, and so in closing, I'd like to say this, you know, I do fly more than probably the average person, but not as much as some. Can I tell you something I've learned to do when I fly that's I'm sure you do too, but it's interesting. When I fly, I find myself praying a lot. There's something about being 30,000 feet in the air in like a lot of tons of steel that I just feel more comfortable when I recognize that I need God to protect me, to help me, to give me confidence. I need to depend on him. So, you know, every time I fly... I pray a prayer like this. In fact, my wife and I flew to Raleigh, North Carolina last week to, uh, to speak at a couple's conference, and we prayed this prayer in our seats. And here, here's how it goes. It's kind of mundane. It's the same thing every time. I say, Lord, give me a safe takeoff. Give us a safe takeoff in Little Rock and a safe landing in Atlanta and a safe takeoff in Atlanta and a safe landing in Raleigh. That covers it all. God, just give us safety. Because I know, God, I can't, I can't fly the Christian life without you. I can't, I can't love without you. God, I can't do any of this without you. My whole world would fall apart. Honestly, there's only one reason why I'm standing here this morning and it's the Lord. It's just the Lord. Only one reason why I've been able to keep my hope fully in him. It's, it's, he's helped me to do it. You know, I love the song we're about to sing. Lord, I come, I confess. I confess. Following here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one who guides my heart. Where sin runs deep, your grace is more. Where grace is found is where you are. And here it is. And where you are, Lord, I am free. But why am I free? Holiness is Christ in me. Can I tell you something? I don't think strictness is where it's at. I think holiness is where it's at. You know, we think that the Christian life is so restricted, but truly the Christian life is about holiness, which is free, if you will. I want to challenge you today to let God teach you this song so that when temptation comes your way, when you cannot stand, instead of falling apart, you let God guide your heart. All of us are here today as a result of the grace of God. I understand that. And may we today ask him to help us to fly right because we can't do it without him. So in just a moment, we're going to pray. And as we pray, I want to invite you to come pray. If you need to be saved today, if you don't know for sure, if you died, you'd go to heaven. I want to encourage you to, to trust on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know Mr. Weatherford would say it's the best decision he's ever made. And it'll be the best decision you've ever made. And you can make it today by faith. Let's bow our heads, shall we? Father, God, we ask you to bless this invitation. God, take control of this service. And God, as we sing and praise and worship and lift your name, God, may you take this service completely over. May you guide our hearts. May you allow us to keep our eyes fully fixed on you and not on anything else in this world because so many things let us down. But God, you, you are always there. And if we put our eyes on you and keep our eyes fixed on you, God, our Christian lives can fly at an altitude that will be pleasing. In your sight. So God, give us strength to do that. I love you. We love you. Bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Shall we stand?